You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Would you build a house without a foundation? Would you have a child and not name it? Would you let a stranger squat on your property? No, of course not. So why should the internet be any different? Every week, speak with top domain experts. Learn how to make money with domains. Know your legal rights. Each week, join our expert host to be master of your domain. Right here on Domain Masters. Hello, everyone. This is Monty Khan, your host of Domain Masters. Uh, thanks for listening in. Uh, as everyone knows, uh, two weeks ago, we did a number of interviews at the Traffic East Conference. Uh, it was pretty exciting. I think we had 90 minutes of interviews uh, with uh, all kinds of folks that were on panels and also that participated in the event. Um, we had a very successful uh, Traffic East uh, um, uh, attendance and, um, and also presentation and uh, conducted the industry's first domain auction, live auction with an auctioneer. And uh, Walked away selling four hundred and thirty nine thousand dollars worth of domain names, so it was a it was a pretty cool event. And uh, I had uh, I interviewed a bunch of auctioneers and uh, and found one here in uh, Florida that was really great and uh, um, was good with the crowd. And uh, he was a stand up comedian uh, half the time as well and cracked everybody up. But uh, the bottom line was is that uh, we had uh, good participants good participants in the audience and uh, and some great sales uh, uh, done. Uh, the highest uh, domain name sold. Two weeks ago was um, consulting.com for $180,000. It went to the folks at iReet, which is uh, Mark Ostrovsky and the gang over there, which I've had on my show before. Uh, they also bought uh, uh, a couple other domain names, bachelor.com, net, and org for $125,000. So that was a good pool by them. Um, some uh, some other domain names that were purchased was soapoperas.com for $55,000. And uh, a uh, number of domain names in the five, four or five, and uh, four or five figures, and um, so it's been a pretty successful uh, uh, event. And uh, there was a lot of good content. I participated on four panels, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my guest after the commercial is uh, Paul Keating. And um, 
Paul is uh, uh, an attorney and, uh, and a tax expert, and uh, he's located in Barcelona, Spain, so he's doing us a big favor by being up at 1 o'clock in the morning and doing our interview. But I was on, the, uh, on a panel with him and met him for the first time um, and uh, had a great time uh, playing golf with him. And uh, he's a very knowledgeable attorney. We're going to put him up on our partners page. And, uh, and for all you, uh, all, everyone looking for uh, a kick-ass tax and legal expert um, that also knows international law and also is an expert on setting up uh, international presence in corporations uh, for, their, uh, for your domain name holdings and the advantages of that. Now, we're going to go over a number of those things tonight including um, um, the advantages of going offshore, um, some hijacking issues, and uh, the amortization of uh, domain names. And uh, uh, Paul's going to give us a, a good background of some of the things we talked about on the panel uh, together at Traffic, but uh, also touch on some, uh, some other items as well that uh, weren't discussed there. Um, just to give everybody an update, uh, last week we didn't do a show because we are basically knocked out due to Hurricane Wilma, and Wilma just kicked the kicked the crap out of us. Uh, came in from the west coast of Florida and uh, and um, came in as a category one in the west coast and turned into a category three by the time it hit us. It actually picked up speed over the over the Everglades and uh, um, we uh, personally I lost uh, two of my cars. Uh, windows blew out and I'm operating on generator. I'm still uh, without power. Half my staff is without power, but. My team here at Moniker uh, really pulled together and uh, got our office up and running on generator, and we operated on generator all week and answered the phones. And and uh, although everyone experienced some damage to their houses or cars or both, we really uh, all worked together as a team. And my my staff did a great job of getting us up to up to speed. And uh, Webmaster Radio got knocked out as well, so that's why you didn't have a live uh, live show last week. But uh, they got up on their feet, I think, yesterday or today. And uh, so we're broadcasting live for the first time. Everybody's safe. So in any case, uh, I'm going to break for a commercial, we'll pay some bills, and come back on with Paul Keating and discuss some tax and legal issues for domainers. By any other name would still be the same. Move over, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R.com. More than a name. 60-day free advertising trial on the best of the web directory. That's BOTW.org, the Internet's oldest directory since 1994. We know what you want, and we've got what you need. And hey, if you can get some free online advertising in this world with no strings attached, feel us up. I, I, I mean, feel free to take advantage of this extraordinary offer and start your no-risk 60-day free online advertising trial today. Best of the web. BOTW.org. Commercials off. <laughs> 
Domain Masters. Hey, folks. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, my first guest tonight is uh, Paul Keating. Uh, Paul has been practicing law since 1983, um, and uh, he used to be with a firm and a partner in uh, the firm Carroll, uh, Burdick, and McDowell. I'm sorry, McDonald. And That's right. uh, it was a 93 uh, attorney firm, and uh, Paul later uh, relocated to uh, Barcelona, Spain, where I guess he met his beautiful wife and decided to relocate there. And now he's practicing law in Spain and uh, specializes in uh, finance, international tax planning, internet, intellectual property. Uh, he continues to represent domain portfolio holders on all matters related to their activities, including business structure, financing, leasing, IP transfers, and UDRP process and related litigation. As I mentioned before, uh, we were on a panel, actually two panels together, and uh, um, I really was impressed with Paul's knowledge of the domain industry and uh, more so on uh, international tax and, uh, and intellectual property law. Paul, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Money. Pleasure. And after hearing what you all went through in Miami, I'd say you walk on water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I even got my sandals on today. That's amazing. Uh, definitely. It's amazing. I, mean, I know you were stuck a little bit too. Uh, down, huh? Yeah, you were stuck a little bit too after the uh, after the event. It was so it was so interesting because uh, everybody started bugging out of the conference a little bit early, uh, thinking that this was going to be a doozy of a storm. Didn't think they were going to get out, and although it did hit us late, it was a doozy. I'll tell you. But it didn't sound like that. I I stuck it out. I was there until Monday. Finally, des- in desperation, drove all the way to Fort Myers and and actually had um, ha- had actually no problem there yeah. at all. The airport was open. Flew home, no problem at all. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, you, well, you got um, stuck on the on the East Coast, and it just got hammered. So. Yeah, yeah, it sure did. It sure did. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, being on the show. I know it's, uh, I think it's one o'clock in the morning there, and I know you have uh, a lot of pressing issues. So for you to take the time and be on the on the broadcast is a is a real uh, tribute to uh, what we're doing in the domain community, and I really appreciate your time. Well, I, I appreciate you for inviting me on. All right, and. Um, well, some of the things I would like to talk to you about, and uh, are actually the things that you specialize in, is uh, is to cover some of the areas that uh, we discussed at traffic, and maybe go into a little bit more detail about some of these uh, these items. So uh, tonight, I would like to cover the advantages of going offshore, um, you know, incorporating offshore, and maybe the differences of of um, maybe discussing a little bit about the differences of going offshore as a corporation, and then of course. Uh, covering that it's okay, um, um, obviously, to have domain names registered with a U.S.-based registrar, but as long as you're incorporated offshore and some of those advantages from a, a tax standpoint. Uh, the domain hijacking um, um, issues that uh, we discussed on the panel and um, uh, theft as a potential claim and uh, some of the depreciation and amortization uh, issues for domain names. Sure, be happy to. Uh, how about we cover hijacking first because it's kind of an isolated issue versus the other ones. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, obviously hijacking has been and continues to be one of the top uh, focus points of the domain industry. It's uh, it's something that's increased quite a bit since ICANN changed their transfer out policy between registrars. And uh, um, I'd be interested in hearing your, your take on how this is all going from a legal standpoint and what you're seeing for your clients. Well, uh, let's see. One, one of my main frustrations is in, in being involved in the litigation side or dispute side of domain names is that we are all, at least as lawyers and, and as portfolio holders, rather overly burdened by this set of very, very bad cases that came out in, the, in what I call the wild, wild west days of the domain world, um, where you had people just clearly uh, taking 
you know, uh, trying to sell Coca-Cola.com to Coca-Cola. Right. Um, and that resulted in just this, this litany of bad case law that everybody cites against us now. And I'm really out there plugging, uh, trying to find new theories to apply to this to kind of get the domain name um, business kind of more into mainstream, at least in terms of how judges look at, at uh, domain holders, especially large portfolio holders like most many of my clients. And so one of the theories that we're coming up with is in the theft concept. Mm-hmm. Um, before, before this and even now, uh, the claims that you can make in a theft arrangement, if assuming the registrar is unable to or unwilling to uh, recapture your domain for you or in the event you just simply didn't realize that it, uh, it had been hijacked until it was far too late to deal with it on an informal basis, the available claims that you have in the litigation-wise world are, are relatively narrow and limited, and they have a lot of defenses that you come up against. But one of the things that I've been exploring more and more, and we're actually, I'm actually pressing a case in California on this claim, this theory, uh, is just simply describing it as theft, uh, theft of property. And the advantage that you get there is that most state laws have, and most states have separate laws on theft of property, and all of them say that no matter how long a person has held uh, stolen property and how they obtained it, it's still stolen, and they never have proper title to it, so the title can always revert back to the original owner. And, of course, the, the only problem we face here is classifying domain names as property under state law. Right. And there have been uh, – California is a great jurisdiction for this because the Kremen case came out and absolutely – the Ninth Circuit, anyway, came right out and, and, con- and contradicted what they had said in 1999 and said that a domain name was, in fact, property and could be converted or, in, in other words, stolen. Right. Um, there's some cases in Virginia that focus on it being service contracts and other cases that deal with it, describing it as service contracts in terms of uh, specific claims. But it's important to know that <clears throat> the nature of the claims that, they're, that they are issuing these rulings in connection with are things like liens and attachments and things like that, rights of seizure. Uh, in a civil case where you're not alleging theft at all. And the problem is is that in a lien or a seizure, um, really the court has to issue an instruction to the average sheriff or constable saying, go out there to this particular place and go get that piece of property and bring it back to me as as the judge, and then I will give it to the plaintiff. And with, you know, nefarious things like domain names, it's very difficult to issue those instructions. So courts are very are very shy about doing it and they're always been they have always been very conservative in in allowing for foreclosures, liens, seizures of property that is not that are not when the property is not capable of a specific instruction to a very basically educated person. Right. But I still think I think that as now, more there, and more judges become um, knowledgeable that I think more and more people are actually going to take the line of California. There's a case in Colorado. There's a case in Louisiana. There's the entire bankruptcy rules that all all describe these things as property and have for many years. So I think it's a good avenue, and I would really like to see more more cases brought um, 
uh, in connection with hijacking and in other areas of domain law so that we can start creating and building this this backing uh, for the industry as a whole. Now, um, now you covered a, a couple a couple areas uh, within the United States. So, you, so of course, we're all familiar with the Sex.com case, which was in the Ninth uh, uh, District Court of uh, of uh, California. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned Colorado and Louisiana. Those are treating the names or domain <coughs> name uh, theft cases as property as well. And do you have um, do you have the domain names that were involved in those particular cases? I don't have the domain names off the top of my head, but if anybody's interested, I'll be happy to email them to you, Monty, and you can put them on your on your site, or we can otherwise publish them. Um, of All right, more well, great, because the that's the citation uh, of the case, which I'm happy to provide later. You're right, because those uh, those actually the more of those that happen. Now, now where you live, though, um, which is uh, you know in Europe, mm-hmm. how does international law treat these types of cases? Uh, are they more strict? Has there been any precedent set internationally regarding domain name theft, and uh, and what's going on over there? That's a great question. Um, there haven't been any, as far as I've been able to uncover, and I've been working on it here as well. Uh, with the idea of kind of writing a, a little cookbook on how to do it, uh, most people here are relying entirely on um, on, on using the registrar process. Uh, litigation here is is very very different than litigation in the United States. It takes years to do anything, uh, so it's people look at litigation as just the the absolute ultimate forum in which to resolve any form of dispute. So as a result, there have not been, people tend not to use this process. And secondly, the judicial reporting process in Europe as a whole is nowhere near as as complete and wholesome as it is in the United States. Right, right. And unfortunately, uh, there's a couple of very known registrars in Europe that uh, that are responsible for, for harboring the hijacked domain names that are stolen from others. One being uh, Gandhi, which is in France, and uh, and there's a couple others throughout Europe, uh, and then of course some in Korea and Asia. But um, you know, it's a shame that um, the European uh, community and the legal uh, uh, aspects of that particular no, nobody's ever done anything there. Um, I'm wondering what would uh, what would happen in a place like France, who uh, <laughs> is slow to move on anything, but uh, or going after a you know a, a national you know organization that's in their country. Well, don't tell the French that they're slow about moving. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that the more, the most efficient way of doing that is getting together and hammering uh, ICANN and, and getting them to actually terminate the contract with them. The ICANN has to fundamentally police this concept; otherwise, it won't it won't work from that perspective. I mean, for example, as a domain name. As a domain name registrant, the owner of a domain name, I cannot sue a registrar for violating the registrar's contract with ICANN. Right, right. Um, I don't. I'm not considered to be a party to that agreement. And as a matter of fact, the actual contract itself, with all of the registrars, in fact, say that there is no third-party beneficiary, and no third party can sue any any of either of us, the ICANN or the registrar. Registrar for violation of any contract provision stated in this agreement. That's in even in their two, their brand new 2005 agreement. Um, and it's, I understand the reason that it's there from the party standpoint, but it is a shame because it removes a, a large degree of pressure that can be applied uh, against the registrar and indirectly against everybody up the food chain. 
Right, right. Well, the good news is is that um, um, uh, at least uh, some of our some of us registrars are being recognized for preventing things like these hijackings and doing everything we can to cooperate with uh, other registrars that claim that domain names are hijacked. Uh, uh, I agree, uh, and I I want to be probably the ninety nine thousand person that's congratulated you on getting your, that award. It was it was a very good thing. Very yeah, well yeah, it was uh, it was a nice it was nice to be recognized. Uh, and uh, and and those of you who don't know, we won uh, we won uh, uh, an award of excellence for preventing hijacking in our industry. Uh, one of three registrars that uh, that won that award. Uh, Fabulous was one, and so was Direct Nick. Um, and because we, you know, go out of our way to make sure that uh, hijackings are, are are prevented, and uh, furthermore, that we cooperate um, when there are domain names that have been stolen to make sure that they get back to the rightful owner. So, uh, um, so luckily, to date, since uh, 1999, since our inception, uh, we've never had a lost or stolen domain name as a result of our efforts. And I, I owe that to the hard work of our staff and uh, and everyone that uh, takes this seriously in my office because uh, we look at that as uh, as protecting. You know our registrar, our registrant's assets, and uh, look at, at much different than just a domain name. So that's the the reason for doing that. Yeah, and, so, and I, I I hats off to you, and I, I really hope that your your ability, you know, and your diligence continues. And I think it's a good thing for registrars to act in that way. Well, thank you. So moving on to uh, staying on the uh, on the topic of being offshore, since we covered a little bit of uh, of some of the international uh, law from a domain hijacking standpoint, what hasn't occurred? What are some of the advantages of going offshore as a domain name holder and corporation who owns domain names? And where would you say are the you know top places to incorporate um, um, these days? You know, a lot of people are looking at. Um, um, Various places uh, across the world to incorporate now that they're going offshore and trying to, you know, uh, safe harbor tax, uh, ta- you know, their 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 tax uh, potential, um, um, you know, exposure by doing so. So maybe we can walk through some of that with you. Uh, I'd be happy to. I, I I would like to stay away from specific, you know, advice because I'm uh, number one. It seems as though every time a great Tax plan structure is created. The more publicity that's given to it is, is generally its own death knell because governments tend to regulate around it. So I'm, I'm happy to. You know, it's also a very, very specific area, and it's kind of each plan is unique to each person's situation. But but I'm happy to discuss it generally. Okay, um, let's, let's talk it generally, and then, yeah. and let's try to get uh, you know try to try to give us uh, give the listeners uh, some good hints about what they should be doing when thinking about offshore, and you know maybe you know top four or five places to incorporate and why. Well, it's, uh, I'll try. Um, there's there are two main benefits of of going offshore. One is is if done properly, it can greatly assist you in limiting uh, any residual liability stemming from your portfolio. Um, as any portfolio holder has, uh, you know, you have an experience of acquiring a, a list of drop domains or a list of domains, you almost never have the ability to do a, a decent check of them before you have to buy them. They're usually an all, all or nothing kind of deal. Uh, and they're really, in there, once you've acquired a domain name, unless you have a friendly registrar, there's really no way to unregister your domain name uh, formally. You can dump it into a registrar's dump basket, but that's still sitting out there as registered. Right. Um, so the main, li- main, one of the main benefits is limitation of liability. I mean, everybody, everybody tends to stop thinking about disputes uh, 
after you talk about a UDRP. Well, you win or you lose, and, well, okay, I can default and lose, or I can lose after putting together a great argument, uh, and that's it. I, all I have to do is give up the domain name, and or it's given up for me, and I walk away. But that's not the end of the story. The, the, the trademark holder who complained has the right to seek damages from you. Uh, and the damages begin at all gross revenues that you ever earned utilizing this domain name, minus only those expenses that you can prove were required in order to earn the gross revenue. So okay. you're looking at a huge amount of money, potentially. You're also looking at potentially illegal fees, bill, court costs, certainly. Um, not to mention people chasing you around and trying to secure payment on their judgment. Um, so if done properly and structured properly, you can insulate yourself from this kind of personal liability. I'm, I'm constantly amazed, and I was in Miami, at the number of portfolio holders who have substantial portfolios in their own personal name still. Um, I think it's just disaster waiting to happen for them. Now, when, when you say when you say properly versus improperly, so so just not incorporating offshore is the answer. But what what's a proper? What, what do you mean by properly? What's the proper way to do it? Well, the proper way of doing it is is to form to form an appropriate entity offshore in a jurisdiction that's in. I guess, these are my words, not going to roll over and play dead and just simply deliver any document that's requested of it, right? Um, you know, secrecy becomes, or confidentiality, rather, becomes a key word. The other thing that's even perhaps more important than that is, is dependent upon the portfolio, the, the domainer themselves. Do they, having created an entity offshore, do they treat it as a separate legal person? Or do they treat it really as their own pocket? Okay, mm-hmm. so you can go out and create the most elaborate structure in the world, but if you misuse it, people are going to go right through the corporation and come straight to you. And they would be able to do that even if you incorporated in California, New York, New Orleans, wherever, you know, Louisiana, wherever. If you don't treat a corporation as though it was an, uh, a living person. You don't follow the corporate formalities. You never issue the stock certificate. You dip into the company bank account whenever you feel like going off on vacation, that sort of thing. Um, then the court's not going to treat it as though it was a real company, and they're going to allow any plaintiff to go, right uh, to at go you. after you personally. Right. So, you know, the, what I'm against are people who get their tax and liability planning from the magazine in the back of the United Airlines plane on their way off to Panama for vacation, okay? You know, buy your own shell corporation for $1,200 kind of thing. You kind of get what you pay for in that regard, and you're not going to really get any of the benefits that we're talking about. So that's the bad way to do it, okay? Okay. Um, And the the second benefit that you get of this is you get the ability to do some tax planning. You don't get to permanently and, and forever avoid paying Uncle Sam, but it does allow you a great deal of leeway in terms of deferring taxes. Um, and that can be very important. If you think about the fact that, say, every every $100 that I I earn net in net profit, I have to pay, mm, depending on what state you're living in, somewhere between 30% and perhaps as much as 52% in taxes. You can appreciate, well, 
the answer to the question, which is kind of um, re- rhetorical, which is if I didn't have to pay that today and I could reinvest that money in my business, $52 out of every 100 how much more money could I earn? So right. you're dealing with this geometric progression of wealth. And then when, after the deferral process is over and you start utilizing the revenue <clears throat> for your own benefit, then you can start scheduling your tax payments out and planning them out so that you're actually paying the money after you've gen- used it to generate the wealth. Now, at what point, at what point, because this is always a question that comes up, do you start claiming the income? And I guess that varies for, for, for different people at different times, but what's the general rule of thumb that you advise your clients um, on that matter? Well, there's two. That it's a, that's a huge issue. I mean, it depends on where you're where you're a resident of for tax purposes, where you're a citizen of uh, for passport purposes. Uh, but I guess the rule of thumb that would apply to everybody, and it, you know, there may be other rules that would be more restrictive than this, um, but the rule of thumb generally is if you start receiving the benefit from it directly, uh, you take the money and you, you know, use the company credit card to buy your car, or you use the company credit card to go on vacation, or you take the money when you come, you know, you go to, if you're formed in Panama, you go to Panama and collect a bundle of cash and go back home. That's clearly income. That's also tax evasion. Huh? That's not what, that's not the programs that we set up. Um, you know, it's it's more complicated if you're a U.S. citizen because we have the 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 benefit of paying taxes on our global income, regardless of where we earn it and regardless of where we reside. But there are still, nevertheless, planning tools that you can implement to minimize that and to defer it. Such as, uh, uh, well, uh, you can um, you can engage in joint ventures with people such that. By contract, you have essential control over what you really need to control, which is the transfer of domains. Okay, mm-hmm. you can and you do the joint venture along with a non-U.S. citizen, uh, so that you satisfy a very complex set of rules called the Controlled Foreign Corporation Rules. Um, and through a combination of joint ventures, you can utilize trust vehicles. You can utilize a number of other vehicles. Um, that are it would it would require a significant amount of time to go through each one of them and why. Uh, but you, there are vehicles out there that you can utilize in order to defer all or a portion of the in the monetization value of the the domain. Right, and then and then um, I, I assume that you would uh, you could take uh, you know some kind of annual allocation for your work that's involved in the in the corporation and and still. You know, get the benefits of that deferred income and the tax uh, portions of that deferred income over time. Correct. I mean, you could, for example, form an S company, S corporation in your in your particular jurisdiction where you live, and that S corp could have a legitimate lease agreement to monetize some portion of the domain portfolio or all of it. And as long as the other, as all the rules are are met and the I's are dotted and the T's crossed, then your revenue is can be limited to what you actually take out of that S-Corp. Got it. Got it. So the rest of it is running and, and regenerating wealth for you, or for the owners of the entity, to be more precise. So, right. right. Okay, it, so... It's something um, that um, can't... 
Um, that's why I said it's it's very specific for every person. There's really no, uh, you know, it's not a uh, add the instant soup to the boiling water and create a plan concept. Um, and if done well, it's perfect. If not done well, it can be a disaster. I mean, there are a lot of people who have these have offshore companies in Nevis and and uh, Caymans and Panama, but they're really, you know, they're really not separate. Hmm? Right, right. They're the same people in the same breath would say, I sold my domain XYZ.com for $6 million. But if you do the Whois lookup and you do you go to whois.sc, you know, whois.sc, you look at the history, well, the history is another third party out there is supposed to be the owner of this, so why is this person running around claiming that he sold or she sold this domain name that she used to own or she did own, et cetera? I mean, that, that's just bad planning. If you transfer the ownership into a proper structure that's offshore, it's no longer yours, it's the company's. Right? You, right. Have, you have to live that mantra. You can't just set it up on a piece of paper and then forget about it. What, what countries are typically the best <clears throat> countries to, uh, to set up these types of offshore uh, entities these days? Because you mentioned uh, Nevis and you mentioned uh, Panama, which was real popular, uh, I guess, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, and I guess is perceived as being popular in addition to, you know, Car- uh, Carousel and, and, you know, some of, the, uh, some of the islands in the Caribbean and that kind of stuff. Well, as, as a rule of thumb, I try and stay away from any jurisdiction where the impact of reading the address on a business card would be, uh-huh, you're, you're, you're avoiding taxes. Right? <laughs> so that take, And I also avoid any jurisdiction that signed an informational tax ex- exchange treaty with the United States where they are agreeing to provide tax information for matters pertaining to fraud. Right? Right. And the reason I do that is because the IRS takes the takes a position that if you if you're evading taxes in the United States, it's fraud. Well, certain countries, although they've signed a treaty with the United States, say, "Well, wait a minute. When we say fraud, we meant fraud in our country, not fraud in your country." Okay, and not tax evasion. Uh, but that's a political decision. Huh? So, if the politics, the wind of politics changes in that country, you can find yourself on the losing end because all of your tax-related information and disclosures to your own private jurisdiction have now been shared with the United States government or Canadian government or any other jurisdiction where you may have a tax liability. Um, so I stay away from those kind of countries. So that, that rules out companies like Nevis, countries like Nevis. Panama's not so bad. <clears throat> has some distinct advantages. It's an English-speaking country. You don't have a currency exchange problem. Uh, they have pretty good bank secrecy laws and tax secrecy laws. Um, I favor jurisdictions that actually, believe it or not, have tax treaties with the United States. Uh, Luxembourg is one of them. It's a very good one uh, because simply be, it passes the smell test. You, you give a business card that says Luxembourg on it, and everybody says, ah, wow, what a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never think about it as a, as as uh, a tax shelter uh, country, yeah, I don't like to use those words, but they they don't think of it as a as a as a beneficial place for tax purposes. Let's put it that way, right? But it and actually, surprisingly, but it actually surprisingly is. not Luxembourg. the United States has its own tax haven. You know, and if you wanted to pick up your your business and and house lock, stock, and barrel and move to the U.S. Virgin Islands, you could save a substantial amount of your taxes. 
Oh, really? Like if you were to locate to, to St. Thomas, St. John's, any of the Virgin Islands? Yeah. yeah, but you have to you have to satisfy the residency requirements there. Because it's part of the United States, I can't prohibit you from moving there, but you have to actually move there. You can't just maintain a fake address or buy a condo and never go there kind of thing. You have right. to follow the rules. Now, uh, now the IRS how, knows how are those this, U.S. So very, very strict uh, uh, on applying those rules? How are those U.S. How are the U.S. Virgin Islands protect? What differs there than it does in the United States? Are are, are you saving? Um, <clears throat> you're saving your 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 normal income. Your normal. Well, you you have you have no no state tax equivalent, and you have a greatly reduced federal tax obligation because it's an area uh, in that the U.S. as a matter of its political policy has decided needs more people to retain more income so that people will go there and develop businesses and it will be an attractive place for tourism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, hence the reason why a lot of pharmaceutical companies located in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay. okay. Got it. So, I mean, it's, it, it's funny because the, I, the, the U.S. and the IRS are always running around banging pots and pans all the, over the world screaming about other jurisdictions that have similar situations, but... They never ever want to talk about their own, so or our own, since I'm an American citizen. <laughs> so, right, right, right. Um, but Luxembourg has some very very interesting alternatives to that, um, which fall very neatly in into the domain concept. See, domain names. I mean, the only reason that this thing that this concept really works so well in the domain name business is that the the question is where where is a domain name located. Right? Well, since the domain name is a form of intellectual property, it's located wherever the owner is located, right? with certain exceptions. And for that part, you can put that registrant anywhere. You just put, them, put the company there. The company owns all the domain names. All the money that is used to pay the registration all comes from the company. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the company. That company leases its domain names to somebody else to monetize. Um, the certain amount of restrictions apply. For example, if you have domain names that are resolving to actual web pages, you want to make sure you understand where those web pages are are being hosted, because some countries, Spain, for example, France, UK, and the US, to a much lesser extent, but they're going to be moving that direction. All say that where the web page is hosted is where the business is and where the money is earned. Hmm? Right. Got so it. You want to try. You want to really understand the concepts that you're dealing with, and move as many of those things offshore, so that you can satisfy all of these rules. And technology. I mean, Europe, European data centers and hosting centers are just as good as the ones in the states. They may not be located next door, but they're a phone call away. They all have. You know, <clears throat> 24 by 7 service desks, they all speak any language you want them to speak, and they do, they do a good job. So there's no reason not to, right? There's no technical, technological reason not to. You may have a relationship that you want to protect with someone, but that's a different, that's a different story. It's a different right, basis right. for a decision. Hey, uh, I'm getting a couple questions on the, on the forum. Um, sure. uh, uh asking, uh, what's involved in transferring personal property into a business entity? Uh, it depends on where you're located, but if you're in the U.S., uh, and depends on the nature of the business entity as to whether it does you any good, 
But <clears throat> there's a federal statute called Section 351, and Section 351 basically says if I take a piece of property and I contribute it to a company, corporation, S-corporation, LLC, etc., and in exchange for that, I receive the stock of the company. Let's keep the example really simple. It's a sole, I own this company 100%. Right? And I just, I take a thousand domain names, put it into the company. In exchange for that, the company gives me the stock certificates evidencing 100% of ownership. There's no tax consequence to that. I, I don't have a gain that I need to recognize for income tax purposes. What I have is a piece of paper, the stock certificate, that's worth exactly what my domain names were worth on a cost basis, a tax basis, what I paid for them, minus what I've already amortized, if I've amortized anything. And when I sell that piece of paper, then I have a taxable gain, and the gain is the difference between what I sold it for and what my original tax basis was right. when, I got, when I did the domain stock exchange. Hmm? Right, right. Okay, good. So, um, Now, um, <clears throat> one other question. Uh, are you familiar with the 2257 rules that the uh, adult community is dealing with right now? Yes. Um, I'm not an expert in it, but I, because it pretty much t- touches any portfolio, I have, I have to understand it. So, so um, one of the big questions is, um, are you protected anymore? So, so a lot of companies are relocating offshore due to that um, issue, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, mainstreamers are, are locating off, offshore just like uh, for the reasons you explained as well. Mm-hmm. But are you protected anymore if you're registrars in the United States versus um, international? So, you know, we've always stood by, you know, from a WIPO perspective, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to have to abide by those things. But if you're with a U.S.-based registrar like Moniker, does it matter that you're in, with an international registrar if you're located, your corporation and your business and your hosting is offshore? Is there any advantage to also working with an international registrar? Uh, there, there is. Uh, there's one large advantage, and on, really only one. Uh, and that is that in the event of litigation, it's far more difficult for the plaintiff to obtain information from an offshore registrar than it is a domestic U.S. registrar. Um, case in point, um, I was recently involved in helping someone defend against a SPIM case, you know, spam and instant messaging. And the plaintiff in this case, who I can't name, um, actually filed a lawsuit six months, approximately six months before they even served it on the defendants. They, served, they, they filed this lawsuit as plaintiff versus John Doe, okay? Mm-hmm. And then they took that complaint and they used it as, as the basis for the attorney for the plaintiff issuing subpoenas to anybody he felt or she felt like issuing them to, banks, PayPal, registrars, hosting companies, anybody, okay? And they just specified the information to be responded, uh, to, to which needed to be responded. And it was shocking how many people just simply responded. Banks would just, they'd, they'd issue a subpoena. The complaint would be John Doe, not name anybody. The subpoena would be issued saying, give me all of Monty Khan's banking records. Right. And the bank would give it to them. Um, the registrar in many cases, would give it to them without even objecting, without asking any questions at all. Um, Now, 
going offshore does a lar- is a large step in preventing that sort of thing. Um, you know, e- I will say that you know the issuance of subpoenas is a valid process, and and as you know, Monty, from getting a subpoena, if it's validly issued, you can't say no. You have to give that information. Right. Um, all you can do is object on the basis that the subpoena is overly broad or unduly burdensome or some such. But that really just boils down to a negotiating process with the issuing attorney. And eventually, some, at least some information is going to be pr- produced. So the major advantage of using a registrar that's offshore is exactly that. You, you, unless the registrar is going to just simply voluntarily comply, or unless the plaintiff is so serious about going and getting you that they actually go through some very, very complex procedures uh, in order to have a subpoena issued outside the United States, they're never going to get the information. And in many countries, they don't recognize private discovery like we do in the United States. In Spain, for example, if I'm involved in in a lawsuit here as an attorney, I have to ask the judge to ask the other side the question. And the judge can say, no, I don't need to know that. Oh, I see. Or it's, that's confidential. I don't think they should have to give that. And if I want to see a document, I have to describe exactly what that document is. You know, letter to Monty Khan dated November 2nd, 2005. Um, so they tend not to want to... People in the United States... Uh, lawyers in the United States get very nervous when they have to go and conduct discovery overseas. Right? right. That, that is a benefit. I'm sorry. You, know, you can just go form a reg- another registrar overseas, Monty, and you can get all that business. Yeah, well, actually, we're doing that. Good. Uh, <laughs> oh, <you're not> <laughs> we have 12 registrars, so uh, uh, I'm always looking for good registrars uh, offshore. Uh, offshore. Matter of, fact, yeah. matter of fact, I think we'll engage your services to do that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> So in any case, um, okay. So um, let's move on to uh, let's move on to the way people recognize domain names in terms of property from a tax standpoint, the amortization and depreciation of domain names. And this was a very interesting t- t- subject that we discussed on the panel, and it answers a lot of questions because there's a huge variance in what people are doing. Uh, some of the co- corporations that have bought portfolios versus. Um, some of the individuals that have bought uh, domain names, and there's an amortization philosophy that ranges greatly between two to 15 years um, and how people are treating it. So mm-hmm. give us your take on what's happening in the industry currently, why people are treating it differently, and what you recommend as a, as a tax attorney and a specialist in this area and what people really should be doing. Okay. Um, well, you're, you're absolutely correct. There's a huge spectrum, and it actually runs from... Uh, people who are expensing the domain, the cost of the domain in the year that they acquire it, which is, in, in my opinion, in most people's opinion, not sustainable as an opinion, that, that as a basis. That, that's, that's absolutely wrong. Uh, and if you get caught doing that, then you're, the penalty that you're going to pay is uh, the back taxes, the penalty for having done it, plus interest on the amount that you didn't pay. So that's just that's just waiting for the, you know, the, the truck to hit you while you're standing in the middle of the intersection. Um, there, there's a, in terms of amortization, uh, there's a range. Uh, many companies, for example, Martex has disclosed in their SEC filings that they use anywhere between 12 and I think it's 64 months uh, as their amortization schedule. 
And what do what do they base the different time period on? I mean, what are they saying is twelve versus uh versus? I wish the, the I wish ladder? I knew. I've been trying to find that out from them for a while, and and uh, and if if uh, if they're listening, I would love to learn learn just to know uh, what the basis is because I can't I can't sustain it. I I, I don't understand it. Other than an argument that goes something like this, that we don't believe that we will be earning any money from this domain name after between 12 and 64 months. We think that it will be an absolutely useful, useless piece of, uh, of property, and in fact, by that time, we will have abandoned it. Um, that's really the only argument that you can make. Amortization is, is, is an economic concept. All you're doing is allocating the purchase price or the creation price of the property over the period in time which is actually generating revenue. Okay? Right. It's just matching up kind of an, ex- an expense concept with a revenue concept. Um, that's the only basis that they can do it. Uh, the, the IRS has privately said, unofficially, they, they've never issued a public rule, uh, a private letter ruling about this, um, and they have stated that they will not do so. Uh, but they've said that they would recognize a 15-year amortization for any domain name that has been acquired or created after August 10th, 1993, which I think covers just about every one of them. Except for the, um, except for the very early lucky registrants. <laughs> yeah, but then, then their, their costs are almost nothing anyway. So they right, right. <laughs> they're, they're not the ones that we're buying and selling for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So. Um, so for them, it's just an argument over whether I amortize, what, uh, $100, something like that. So that's pretty much nothing. But the, the reason you want to amortize it is because, again, remember when we talked about minimizing taxes, it's, it's this geometric progression of your wealth. You know, the money that I don't spend on, on taxes, I can reuse and, and reinvest in my business. And so amortization gives you a non-cash expense. You haven't paid any money out. You already did that. It just allows you to record this expense as though you paid it out this year or a portion of it, and you get to reduce your tax bill. So you can imagine, you know, if I don't amort- if I bought a domain name for $100,000 or, let's make it easy, $150,000, it's very different if I can deduct $15,000 worth of profit or approximately $6,000 worth of income taxes every year for 15 years as opposed to doing nothing. Right? Right. What would you do with that extra $6,000 every year? And what would that be worth at the end of the 15-year period? It'd be a lot of money. So doing nothing with it is, seems like a financial waste. So that's why you want to amortize it. So the question then becomes how. Um, there's some very specific rules in the Internal Revenue Code, and notwithstanding the IRS's position, none of them really apply to domain names. Um, there are, there's a section uh, involved, one, 197, if my memory at this hour is serving me correctly, um, and it provides a list of what properties can be amortized, and if they're in this list, then it can be amortized over 15 years. If it's not in the list, you can't amortize it period. That's just Congress. They said no. Um, so there's a bunch of list things that domain names might fall into, but they really don't when you think about it. It's, they're not really a trademark. 
because a trademark is a source indicator. You know, it's Nike shoes come from Nike Corporation. Uh, someone in the PPC business, today it's being monetized with one person, the next day it's being monetized with another person, or it's being run through Fabulous or Google or Hit Farm or any number of the people who are actually generating con- cur- contextually related results that are based upon current day uh, search criteria. Right? So the same domain name two years ago would not generate the same search results as it does today. So it's not source indicator. I see. So it's not a trademark. It's not a service contract. Um, you know, we kind of went through the same analysis that we did with the theft of property. And even if it is a service contract, it has an indefinite life, so you can't, you can't pen it on anything. Uh, even even if it's license. like a subscription that has a, a begin date and an end date unless you renew it? Well, uh, you, you, can, you can amortize service contracts like leases or long-term employment contracts that you buy along with a business, for example. A subscription uh, wouldn't the cl- term, be classified The term that of category. that is, includes every single renewal option that's in your control to renew, right? So with a domain name, you're in control of the re-registration process. You, you have the absolute right to re-register it. So it really doesn't have it, – its, its useful life goes on forever. Arguably. Right, I guess so, unless you uh, – yeah. Well, not forever because uh, what, what, what about uh, – well, I guess the predicted life of a human being. But then you can pass it down to to a to a, to yeah. another member in your family. Then, so I guess so. Yeah, or or put it into a corporation which has a, an indefinite life in and of itself. So right, right. You know, it's it's still it's up to the registrant to decide, and therefore that's what's always given it the problem. It's it's not it's also not a government license. You know, government license is kind of like uh, taxi medallions or or um, uh, liquor licenses. Huh? It's something that the government had and then it gave to you. But domains are not that way. The registrar, registrar doesn't own anything. They're not licensing anything to you. They're just they're allowing you to reserve a name, period. I see. So it's not a, they're not licensing the right to do something because in order to license someone the right, you have to have had the right to use it and own it and possess it yourself, right? which doesn't exist. So it doesn't really fall into anything. Right? There is a safe harbor that says, well, if it's not listed in the list and it doesn't have a useful life that you can reasonably calculate, you can still use 15 years. But that only applies to intellectual property that's created, not intellectual property that's acquired from someone else. That takes this, you know, substantial number of these domain names right off, right off the list. I mean, anything you acquired in a drop, no. Anything you acquired in a portfolio auction, no. You know, you had to go out, go out there and register. So what are we amortizing over 15 years? Well, about $7.95, right? I see. It's a waste of time. And then there's, there's, one, there's one person out there that's kind of a, a tax guru. He's a CPA in New York, and he's come up with this theory that you kind of have to create two baskets of value for any domain. One is you know, the trademark value and the inherent value. Um, trademark value is if it could be protected as a trademark, would it be valuable? Apples for apples, you know, selling apples, or is it apples for selling computers? So it has a high apple computer. Apple dot com for computers has a very high trademark value. Right. Um, Hotels dot com has a zero. 
value for trademark purposes because it's descriptive of hotels. Hmm? Oh, I see. Um, inherent value is the side of life that says, okay, forget the trademark stuff. Do a lot of people click on it or type it in? Hmm? If the answer is yes, then it has a high value, inherent value. The trademark portion of the value is amortized over 15 years, and the inherent value is not amortized at all. And that's, you could appreciate someone who has 5,000 domain names trying to go through this, right? They have to value every single domain name in their portfolio. Then they have to they have to tell their accountant that they're going to keep track of two different values for every domain name. <laughs> it would be a disaster. I'd, ra- I'd rather just rely on the unofficial position of the IRS and say, okay, 15 years. <laughs> or do what Martex does, which says, we're going to say it's this period of time because our our expectation is and our experience is, which is very important, we do not hold domain names for longer than this period of time. Right? But if your experience is that you're holding domain names for longer and longer and longer periods, then you have to constantly be address, uh, kind of a, extending that amortization schedule for every new domain name that you're acquiring. Right? The old ones keep the old amortization schedules because you can't change them once you set them. But the new ones kind of get readjusted based upon your then-current experience at the time you acquired it. I see. Right? So if in the beginning you said, oh, no way I'm going to be in this business after three years, um, and so three years is fine, but then after the in the third year you're starting to acquire domain names that have, you know, 6 x Caught, you know, six times revenue valuations and ten times revenue valuations. So the expectation is you're going to hold them for that long a period of time. That's what the price was based on. So for you then to take a lesser period of time for amortization is kind of inconsistent. Right. Right. So that's a really boring subject. Yeah, but, know, but you know what, it's technical. boring. Uh, it may seem boring, but a lot of people ask these questions. I mean, um, uh, as you know, I had um, I had uh, Evan Brody on, which is uh, which is our um, accountant, and uh, he takes care of a lot of clients. And, um, you know, everybody really responded well to some of the, uh, you know, the accounting issues that were involved around domain names. He particularly focused in on how to incorporate within the United States um, the various options and advantages, you know, LLC versus uh, S-Corporation versus, you know, partnership, that kind of stuff. And then um, he, he's not an offshore specialist, so he wasn't able to answer a lot of those questions. But, you know, a, a lot of the legal um, guests that I have on the show, um, they actually inspire the most questions, and actually my, my audience gets the most out of it. So you may think it's, you know, I know you it's not, uh, it's, it's your everyday uh, work in life, but uh, these guys always want to know how to treat their assets. Well, they they have some. First of all, they they have some huge assets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot um, of the guys monetize their domain names. I think names, I heard uh, that show it was in May, right after after the the Traffic West. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. He, he had a good, he had a great point about S corporations. Yep. Yep. Very good. Very good plan. Hey, um, um, what about treating domain names as inventory if you're buying and selling them? Because that was a question that came up at Traffic West as well, and I have somebody on the board that's uh, that's asking that question too. So I'm in the business to buy and then sell, buy and then sell. So I'm, I, I, can I treat the domain names like inventory in that particular case? Yeah, I I believe that that you can, um, as long as you are in that business. Huh? So if I'm buying and selling, and that's all I'm doing, not monetizing, I'm not. I'm not I, I may be monetizing them. But I'm only monetizing them for very short periods of time. My holding period for domains is very short, less than a year, for example. Then 
I see no reason why you couldn't treat it as inventory because that is, in fact, the inventory of your business. But if you're just doing occasional buying and selling, you're selling 10, you, you own 1,000 domain names and you buy and sell maybe ooh, 50 or 100 a year, I don't know that you're necessarily in the business of buying and selling domain names. Right, right. So it's a, it's a, that's a very specific and narrow niche for people. You know, it, it might apply to people, you know, if the Sado.coms of the world were actually acquiring domain names and just that instead of just having them given to them to sell. Uh, and they, they could, I mean, it's a bad example because they're not in the U.S., but um, they could treat it that way. Which right. actually reminds me, something I meant to say going offshore is, one of the things that you can do offshore is you can amortize very, very quickly. In, um, in many places, for example, Luxembourg allows you a you know, two-year amortization schedule, uh, maximum three. And so you, know, you can uh, take advantage of more aggressive and, shall we say, business-friendly rules that exist outside the United States. Oh, that's great. So that's great. So um, just to just to wind up the uh, uh, the broadcast, uh, one thing I like uh, I like everybody to walk away with is uh, you know a couple key points or a couple key um, tips to make their business operate better um, as domainers and um, you know so that they walk away with things that they've learned. What what are the top three or four suggestions that you would make to those out there um, who are in the categories of uh, you know monetizing their domain names or selling their domain names and, and the way to treat them? Um. Uh, okay. Uh, first of all, stop expensing your domain name acquisitions. It's just going to get you into trouble. Um, go see your accountant and go have your and have your accountant uh, go through the tax code. And if they have any questions, certainly call me or any other tax specialist. Uh, so stop doing that immediately. Two, I would even if you're not going to move offshore, I would seriously think about putting your entire portfolio in. Uh, in a separate entity and not having them registered in your own name. Uh, and an S-corporation is a perfect vehicle for that. The next item is if you're making, if you're netting, say, $200,000, between $150,000 and up, uh, and when I say net, it's after your living expenses. So that's, that's a net that you're not spending on your own personal stuff. Then I'd say that it, you might you might actually be a, a good candidate for uh, an offshore plan, or at least the, you know to invest. You should at least investigate it, whether it's with me or with somebody else. I think it would be beneficial for you to investigate it uh, for the liability limitations as well as the potential tax deferral. Uh, but don't don't do your tax planning on the basis of you know the the last couple pages of the United Flight magazine. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's just a ripoff. That's someone. That's that's the way. Unfortunately, a lot of people get their money down in largely in Caribbean countries, but <clears throat> they also take your money and say, "Well, listen, your personal tax problem is your own ter- personal tax problem," and you don't you don't you're kind of left high and dry if there's an issue. So. Right. Well, that was uh, that's some great uh, advice, Paul. And um, I have posted your contact information on the board. For those of you listening, um, please contact Paul uh, to uh, get any kind of advice on uh, international tax law, setting up uh, your corporations off uh, offshore, um, any of the issues and topics that we discussed. Um, 
His telephone number is, uh, of course, zero one one if you're calling from the United States. But the uh, the telephone number is three four six three nine three seven one four four eight. He can also be reached by email at p r keating. That's p r k e a t i n g at r e n o v a l t d l t d. I'm sorry, r e n o v a l t d dot com. And I noticed on the on the, uh, on the board, and I am also adding Paul as a uh, legal reference and um, uh, partner on our partners page on Moniker.com uh, probably this week. So anyone can come to Moniker.com, go to our partners page in the legal resource section, and uh, you'll see his uh, his name uh, uh, and his email, and be able to link to him. And I highly recommend you, uh, everyone listening, use his services and and get in touch with him. Is there any any other uh, things you'd like to add or about your contact or how people can get a hold of you? Yeah, just two, please. Uh, one is I'm in Spain, so that's nine hours ahead of California and six hours ahead of the East Coast. So <laughs> yeah. please don't, don't uh, be bear that in mind when you call. To ask for an interview or a phone call at uh, 7 o'clock at night, which is 1 o'clock in the morning your time. <laughs> yeah, no, you won't get any answer. Uh, the other way is uh, I'm a big, avid user of Skype, so my Skype ID is PRK-Spain. Uh, it's my, new, my personal one, and... Uh, you can reach me there, through there, anytime, whether it's at the office or whether I'm online at home. So right. I generally respond. Well, this was a, a very informative show. I really appreciate your time, and I know, uh, again, I uh, appreciate uh, your busy schedule and the fact that it's uh, now uh, 2 o'clock in the morning your time, and so I, I really appreciate your time. And I would like to have you on for another show uh, in, the, you know, in the future to, to do some follow-up stuff on uh, some of the legal um, uh, um, you know, conversations and uh, some of the things that are going on in the uh, community. I'd be happy to, Money. Great. Well, thanks and don't again forget for your, to register uh, everything in Moniker. Right? Yes. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So no uh, have a have a great uh, great two or three hours left for sleep, and uh, I know you got a busy day tomorrow. I do, but I'm going to play loafer and uh, get to the office before nine thirty. So. And you guys uh, get to cut off like at two o'clock, nap, and have a big no, lunch, and no, uh, you no, know, no. Uh, that's, party that's all night. Old hat. That's old hat. <laughs> uh, people here work long party hours. At four o'clock in the morning every night anyway. They're at the office by nine, and they're they're going home at eight. They do. They take a long. A lot of people take a long lunch break, but the long lunch break here is two hours, and you don't get to go home and go sleep. You don't get to sleep on your sofa. So <laughs> uh, it's usually more and more. You know, America is American capitalism is coming to Europe, notwithstanding the French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 screw the French. Screw the French. No, no, no I didn't say that. No, I, I didn't. They're objecting to it. <laughs> no. So uh, anyway, thanks a lot, Paul. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, take thanks. care. All right, All right, right. folks, uh, that wraps up uh, a great Domain Masters show. Um, um, uh, I, I think we're up to date on our archives, uh, given the uh, week uh, of uh, disaster here from Hurricane Wilma. But uh, if you go to moniker.com or webmasterradio.fm, um, the archive should be... Uh, uh, caught up to date. Um, we're still working on the, the t- transcribed versions of all of our archives. I think we're uh, catching up quickly on that as well. And... Um, Next week, uh, depending on whether I'm heading to AdTech or not uh, in New York, um, I might be doing a live show right on the show floor there as well. I'm just debating on what I'm going to do still because uh, I'm operating on generator and uh, have to think about the family and uh, figure out what's going on there. But um, um, next week, uh, probably a show either at AdTech or right here in the offices uh, or at the, uh, at the studio at webmasterradio.fm. So, again, join me next week for another live broadcast of Domain Masters. Be the master of your domain, and I will see you next week. Thanks.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.